Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. In 1988, executives at the Fox TV network arranged a meeting with a young black comedian who was riding high following an unexpected hit movie. Fox was eager to tap into the success achieved by NBC, which had a string of hit sitcoms featuring predominantly Black casts, like The Cosby Show and A Different World. Executives thought bringing this comedian on board might help them come up with their own Black shows, and in the process, put the new network on the map. In that meeting, ideas were tossed around for a new type of variety show. They called it a Black Laugh-In, or Black Hee-Haw, There's many versions of what actually took place in that meeting, but there's no arguing that the comedian walked away with an agreement to make a TV show that would become a cultural phenomenon, forever changing the face and tone of television. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we look back at Keenan Ivory Wayans and the show he created. This is the story of In Living Color. Keenan Ivory Wayans first discovered his love of comedy as a young boy living with his 10 brothers and sisters in a housing project on the west side of Manhattan. In fact, he traces it back to a single after-school event. On that day, Keenan was chased home by a bully. And because he ran so fast, he arrived home early enough to catch comedian Richard Pryor on a daytime talk show. Keenan was mesmerized as Pryor made jokes about his life as a poor black kid who had also been the target of a bully. From that moment, Keenan knew he wanted to be just like Pryor, someone who could turn horrible moments and injustices into humor. During the 1970s and 80s, Keenan worked his way up the comedy circuit, paying his dues at comedy clubs in New York and Los Angeles, eventually hanging out with other young Black comedians like Arsenio Hall and Eddie Murphy. In 1983, he finally got a break, when he was invited to perform on The Tonight Show, starring Johnny Carson, where he told a story about his brother, Dwayne, who was fired from his job at McDonald's and blamed it on racism. Does he think there's some secret organization sitting around going, okay, members, listen up. Now, there are too many black people making it in this country. They're making much too much progress. Now, let's see. We've got Malcolm X. We've got Martin Luther King. Dwayne. (laughs) He's up for promotion at McDonald's? Stop him. Keenan even got the coveted invitation from Johnny Carson to come sit beside him on the couch. But the breakthrough didn't lead to any jobs. Not because he wasn't talented, but because at the time, there weren't a lot of opportunities for Black actors and comedians. In fact, author David Peisner says in his book, Homie Don't Play That, Hollywood was a wasteland for Black TV actors in the early 80s. 
Following the era of shows like Good Times and The Jeffersons, which were black shows written by white people, there was a period when very few roles existed on TV for black actors. And the roles that did exist were often ones for characters that were based on harmful black stereotypes, like the street hustler or the pimp. Then, in 1986, NBC began airing The Cosby Show. How do you expect to get into college with grades like this? No problem. Huh? See, I'm not going to college. Damn right. (laughs) It's hard to look back now at The Cosby Show for what it was, thanks to what's been revealed about Bill Cosby in recent years. But at the time, The Cosby Show was a huge cultural event. It was a series about an upper-middle-class family that is thoroughly and unapologetically Black in its sensibilities. Tens of millions of Americans of all races tuned in weekly to find out what the Huxtables were up to, putting the sitcom at the top of the ratings for several years. The success of The Cosby Show countered a belief at the time by TV producers that a Black show would not be widely accepted unless several white faces also appeared in it. It was a massive turning point in TV programming. But author David Peisner says that doesn't mean The Cosby Show wasn't polarizing within the Black community. I, I guess the thing I like to compare it to is, is, is The Cosby Show was set in Brooklyn, as was uh, a lot of Spike Lee's um, films, uh, you know, and, and Do the Right Thing, especially both in the 80s in Brooklyn. And they couldn't have presented more different views of what Brooklyn looked like. The idea was that, uh, you know, the Cosby show, it was certainly showcasing black excellence in a way that hadn't been seen before, but it also wasn't necessarily something that uh, black audiences were relating to on a day-to-day basis. The Cosby show may not have been perfect, but it did do something monumental. It proved to TV networks that a show focused on uniquely Black themes and experiences created by a Black comedian could be successful. In the wake of The Cosby Show, NBC added to its lineup 227, Amen, and The Cosby Show spinoff, A Different World. And other networks were eager to follow suit, including a fairly new upstart that positioned itself as the bad boys of television. Rupert Murdoch launched the Fox Broadcasting Network in 1986, and it had some early successes with shows like Married with Children, The Tracy Ullman Show, and 21 Jump Street. But by 1989, Fox was still struggling to compete with the big three networks. And the people in charge knew that if they were going to succeed, they had to stand out. They needed shows that were different and a little bit edgy. It was around this time that Keenan Ivory Wayans landed a meeting with Fox executives, and that meeting would revolutionize sketch comedy on TV. But how did Keenan go from a breakthrough performance on The Tonight Show to a development deal with Fox? Well, as I mentioned, the appearance on The Tonight Show didn't really lead to many opportunities. So Keenan and his friend, comedian Robert Townsend, decided to make their own opportunities. Robert Townsend and Keenan were part of a group that called themselves the Black Pack. It included Eddie Murphy, who was riding high throughout the 80s with multiple blockbuster movies, as well as comedians Arsenio Hall and Paul Mooney. With little money or knowledge about filmmaking, Keenan and Robert wrote and filmed short sketches, including one they called Black Acting School, which was turned into a low-budget film called Hollywood Shuffle. 
My film's about making it as an actor in Hollywood. The only role they're gonna let us do is a slave, a butler, or some street hood or something. Don't sell out, brother. Hollywood Shuffle was picked up by the Samuel Goldwyn Company, and when it was released in 1987, it went on to be a modest hit at the box office and received praise from critics. But Robert Townsend, who starred in the movie in addition to his co-writing duties, became the public face of Hollywood Shuffle, leaving Keenan on the sidelines, which was not what Keenan had been working all these years to achieve. So he set to work on his own movie, which was actually based on an idea he got with permission from his good friend Eddie Murphy. The film I'm Gonna Get You Sucka is a parody about black exploitation movies from the 70s, like Shaft. It stars Keenan as the lead character, Jack Spade, and features several of his siblings and a very young Chris Rock in this memorable scene. May I help you, sir? How much for order of ribs? Uh, two fifty. Two fifty. How many ribs do I get with that? Uh, about five. Five. So I guess that's about fifty cents a rib, huh? Yeah, about. Let me get one. I'm Gonna Get You Sucka was directed by Keenan and produced by United Artists. But prior to the movie's release, there were changes in management at UA, and it wasn't marketed very well. That didn't matter, though, because audiences loved it. It was initially only released in five markets, but as hype spread about the film, UA released it in more theaters around the country. Eventually, I'm Gonna Get You Sucka made over $20 million on a budget of $2.7 million. Keenan had finally done it. He had achieved success on his own terms, and now he could chart his next course. So that's where Keenan was at when he sat down with Fox executives in 1988. As I said earlier, there are many versions of what actually happened at that meeting. But in the end, Keenan walked away with the green light to create a one-hour pilot episode of a black comedy sketch show, a black Saturday Night Live, if you will. But this would be a show for the hip-hop generation, with shorter, edgier sketches, along with dancers and a DJ. And after throwing around a few names, including Blackout, Urban Renewal, Live in Color, it was finally decided Keenan's new show would be called In Living Color. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. When Keenan set out to cast the pilot, he was determined to build a show around the actors and comedians who appeared on it, and not the writers, which he felt was the case with SNL. That way, he believed no one would ever be forced to appear in a sketch that didn't match their style. He also wanted the sketches to be shorter, never longer than four minutes, but more like one minute or even 30 seconds. A massive talent search was held in cities around the country, and many soon-to-be-famous comedians turned up at the auditions, including Adam Sandler and David Spade, who made it through a few rounds but eventually dropped out for other projects. Winners of the regional searches were invited to a final showcase at the Laugh Factory in Los Angeles. Chris Rock and Martin Lawrence both appeared at that showcase, but Keenan didn't think they were quite ready for primetime, 
so they didn't make the cut. But there were some who did, including Tommy Davidson, Takia Crystal Kama, Kelly Caulfield, and Jim Carrey. Kelly and Jim were the show's only white actors, and apparently Jim Carrey initially said no to the role. Thomas Hayden Church, who went on to appear in the hit 90s sitcom Wings, was the backup choice, but Carrey was eventually convinced to sign on. To round out the rest of the cast, Keenan brought on two of his siblings, Kim and Damon, as well as Kim Coles and David Allen Greer. With the cast in place, Keenan sat down with his writers, some of whom were plucked from Late Night with David Letterman and Saturday Night Live, and together they developed sketches for the pilot. Some of them were riffs on characters and sketches that Keenan had been working on for years with his brothers and his friends, including the hilarious Homeboy Shopping Network, which featured a couple of homeboys named Wiz and Ice selling stolen goods out of the back of a truck. For your automotive needs, we got car phones, we got car stereos, we got car alarms. And if you act now, we could probably get the car. <laughs> According to David Peisner's book, Homie Don't Play That, Keenan and Damon had been playing some version of Wiz and Ice since they were teenagers. There was also the sketch called Men on Film, which featured gay culture critics Blaine Edwards and Antoine Merriweather, played by David Allen Greer and Damon Wayans. Unfortunately, like lots of comedy, David Peisner says the sketch doesn't age very well. If you go back and watch those uh, men on film sketches, there's no way that stuff gets on the air today. And, and for good reason. I mean, it's, you know, it is, you know, indulging some, some uh, pretty bad stereotypes. Even back then, Fox chairman Barry Diller hated the men on film sketch. He wanted it out of the pilot. But after seeing how much the audience at a rehearsal performance loved it, he agreed to leave it in. The pilot also included a sketch called The Wrath of Farrakhan, which poked fun at Louis Farrakhan, the controversial leader of the Nation of Islam. Fox executives weren't thrilled with that one either. They were worried that white people wouldn't know who Farrakhan was and black people would be offended by it. But Keenan got his way and it too stayed in the pilot, which was filmed over two nights in front of a live audience in early 1989. On both nights, the crowd went wild during the taping. They absolutely loved it. There had been nothing like it before. In Living Color appeared ready to take the world by storm. The only thing holding it back were the network bosses at Fox who had agreed to make the show in the first place. Oh, they were scared. They were really scared. They were nervous. I mean, it was... Um... This really, this kind of thing hadn't been on TV before, or it certainly hadn't been successful on TV before. That pilot kind of sat on the shelf for a while, probably eight or nine months. You know, there was a lot of uh, focus groups and they brought consultants who they wanted to, you know, uh, people from the Urban League and the NAACP. They wanted edgy, but they were worried in living color pushed the boundaries a little too far. Too many people might be offended. As the months passed and it seemed like the pilot might never see the light of day, Tamara Rawit, a producer on the show, took matters into her own hands. According to David Peisner, she leaked copies of the pilot to the media. And when a journalist from Details Magazine wrote a rave review about it, Fox finally agreed to act. The day after the review was published, the network gave Keenan the green light for eight half-hour episodes of In Living Color. Before the first season aired, a few changes were made. 
because it was going to be a half-hour show and not an hour, a few cast members were dropped. The crew of dancers, known as Fly Girls, was rejigged, and DJ Daddy Mac, who appeared in the original pilot, was replaced by DJ SW1, also known as Sean Wayans, Keenan's little brother. It's pretty well known that Sean wasn't really a DJ and was essentially faking it on set. Keenan has admitted as much, saying it didn't really matter as long as he looked good doing it. But Sean did provide a big contribution to the show in another way. He recommended to Keenan that rapper Heavy D perform in Living Color's iconic theme song. In living the first half-hour episode of In Living Color, which was a remix of the original hour-long pilot, aired on April 15, 1990. It ran at 9.30 Sunday night on Fox, right after the network's two hit shows, The Simpsons and Married with Children. And thanks to that placement and the hype that had been building around the show, 23 million viewers tuned in to the inaugural episode of In Living Color. Those are massive numbers, even better than Fox had hoped for. But for some reason that's never really been explained, the network decided to move the show to Saturday nights at 9, which could have killed In Living Color, except viewers followed it to the new time slot and tuned in. So Fox reversed its decision and moved the show back to Sundays a few weeks later. When season two launched in September 1990, In Living Color was riding high. It had just won the Emmy for Outstanding Variety Music or Comedy Series, beating out SNL, Late Night with David Letterman, The Tracy Ullman Show, and The Arsenio Hall Show. Fox had bumped up the show's budget and moved it to yet another time slot, 8 p.m. on Sundays. Sean Wayans told The Hollywood Reporter recently that anybody who was anybody began popping by the set to meet the cast. Everyone from Bruce Willis and Demi Moore to Easy e and Sinead O'Connor wanted to be near the stars of the most talked about new TV show. But behind the scenes, not everything was perfect. For starters, season one cast member Kim Coles was fired after a few run-ins with Keenan and his sister Kim. Keenan was also pretty tough on writers. If they didn't produce, they were quick to be let go. Those that survived helped develop some classic characters in season two, including Jim Carrey's Fire Marshal Bill. Hey, Fire Marshal Bill, your finger's on fire! Yeah, it's getting That's nothing! I caught fire so many times, I can't even feel it anymore. <laughs> Jim Carrey's performance as a lipless burn victim safety inspector put the 28-year-old actor on the map hinting at the crazy things Carrie would go on to do with his rubber-like face in the years to come. It was also in season two that the show's dancers, the Fly Girls, developed a cult following. Some viewers were even tuning in just to see their 20-second performances between sketches. Following the first season, Rosie Perez joined the show as choreographer, and a young dancer by the name of Jennifer Lopez was also brought on board. They joined Carrie Ann Inaba, who you may know as a judge on Dancing with the Stars, along with Deidre Lang, Carrie French, and Michelle Whitney Morrison. Rosie pushed the Fly Girls hard to perfect her style of aggressive hip-hop dance moves, something that Jennifer Lopez didn't always appreciate, and their relationship soon became strained at best. There's been lots of talk in the years since about J-Lo and Rosie not getting along while on the show, 
And in a 2015 memoir, Rosie all but confirmed it when she said, Jennifer unabashedly goes after what she wants, and that's not my style. Despite the friction on set, the Fly Girls, with their neon biker shorts, oversized men's jackets, combat boots, and choker necklaces, were a massive hit. Their popularity almost led to a spin-off show called Kick It With The Fly Girls, which Fox announced in January 1991. The network said the show, which would be produced by Keenan and co-hosted by his brother Sean, would feature top-performing artists and new acts. But for reasons not really specified, the show didn't move forward, which was fine by Jennifer Lopez, who would soon leave the Fly Girls to make her breakout movie Selena and begin her journey to become the superstar that she is today. In January 1992, Fox decided to take on the Super Bowl with a live edition of In Living Color, which ran at the exact same time as the halftime show. Back then, Super Bowl halftime wasn't what it is today. No Beyonce and Bruno Mars performing a mashup of hits with jaw-dropping dance moves. It was still marching bands and baton twirlers. No offense to those guys. But let's just say it wasn't the event that we have come to expect. It was more of an opportunity for viewers to reload their chili and nachos. So Fox aired something called the Doritos Zap Time in Living Color Super Bowl Halftime Party. To be clear, they weren't trying to cut into the game, just the halftime show. In Living Color even ran a countdown clock on screen so viewers knew when to switch back to the CBS broadcast of the game. But check this out. The Bad Boys of Comedy got a lot of action for you right here. Fire Marshal Bill, men on and color me bad performing here live. And about 2,000 censors ready to pull the plug at any moment. So if you're ready, hey, we're ready. So let's hang out with the homeboys right now. What's up? Keenan recently told The Hollywood Reporter that a Fox executive was stationed in the booth with a 60-second delay button throughout the live broadcast. He could have hit the button at any time, but he didn't because Keenan says the network wanted the controversy. It was pure genius. 22 million viewers switched over to Fox to watch the In Living Color special. And critics raved that it took the Super Bowl out of the 1950s and into the 1990s. The next year, not to be outdone, the NFL invited Michael Jackson to perform at the halftime show, and a new era of entertainment at the Football Classic was born. The Fox executive with his finger on the delay button during the Super Bowl live show wasn't the only time in living color was closely watched by censors. In fact, there was a constant push and pull between Keenan and network censors who would pull the plug on sketches they thought went over the line. It's something that Keenan found very frustrating because, he says, the line was moved week to week. So he could do something one week, but if the network got complaints in the mail, he couldn't do it the next week. But author David Peisner says Keenan was usually able to find a way to make it work. I think, you know, Keenan, uh, I think was, was and probably to, remains to this day uh, a guy who was comfortable in uncomfortable silences and knew the psychology of how to how to, how to make people do what he wanted. And whether it's a meeting with with executives or a meeting with writers, uh, he was pretty adept at getting his way until he wasn't, which is when the, when the show, when, when he walked. In the middle of season four, fed up with the network, Keenan left the show he created. 
He says he felt exploited because Fox was devaluing In Living Color and using it to launch other shows. The final straw ended up being where they started uh, rerunning season one episodes in a different uh, on a different t- night. When shows get a hundred episodes, they they're they're eligible for syndication, which is a huge payday for the people who created the show. In this case, Keenan, and um, it hadn't yet reached that, and they were essentially running reruns and running it in syndication before it had gotten. And he and he was concerned that that was going to screw up any of his chance at a big syndication deal. But David Peisner says the real issue was Keenan had lost control of the show, and he hated that. In Living Color carried on for the rest of season four and season five with new cast members like Jamie Foxx. Jim Carrey was still there, but on the verge of becoming a box office beast with the release of Ace Ventura Pet Detective in 1994. Keenan's brother Damon also left, but siblings Kim and Sean had to stay because of contractual obligations. Sean says it was hell, like being on the Titanic without a captain. David Peisner says the show lost its way without Keenan. It lost its footing. It lost its point of view. It lost its, like, you know, specifically, you know, black-facing perspective. And so while some of those sketches in in the later seasons are okay, they could be on any show. They're not necessarily in-living color sketches. Despite the loss of Keenan, the show remained pretty popular, and there was actually talk of a sixth season, possibly with Chris Rock joining the cast. But in the end, Fox canceled the show after five seasons. The last episode aired on May 19th, 1994. Four years after In Living Color began, it was over. After leaving In Living Color, Keenan didn't completely leave the show behind. Several years after the series was canceled, he tried to spin off his popular Homie the Clown character into a movie. Oh yeah, fall down, bust my skull open, have my blood and brains ooze out on the carpet so you can get a couple of cheap laughs, huh? I don't think so. <laughs> homie, don't play that. According to David Peisner's book, the Homie film was well into pre-production, but two days before shooting, Fox pulled the plug. Apparently, they were annoyed that Keenan and his brothers, Sean and Marlon, had sold another movie to Sony. That movie was White Chicks, which made over $110 million on a $37 million budget, and it became a cult classic. The brothers also collaborated on the hugely popular Scary Movie 1 and 2, which spoof horror movies of the 90s like Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer. Nearly 30 years since In Living Color went off the air, its impact can still be felt throughout the film and TV ecosystem. In addition to cast members like Jim Carrey, Jamie Foxx, Jennifer Lopez, and Rosie Perez, who went on to become Hollywood icons, many writers on the show have also gone on to do significant work in the industry, including Larry Wilmore, who went on to write and create The Bernie Mac Show, Blackish, and Insecure. And so what, you're, what you then see is that legacy of In Living Color filtering out in ways big and small. Um, you know, even in, you know, it's, it's not so much just about, well, the weigh-ins, you know, get good jobs and, and Jamie Foxx goes on to this big career. It's, it's in ways that are, are a little bit less seen, which are, you know, the writers and the producers go on to, to start all of these other things as well. In Living Color also paved the way for other black sketch comedy shows like The Dave Chappelle Show and Key and Peele. 
In this era of 90s reboots, it's hard not to wonder if Keenan would ever consider doing one for his show. But even some former cast members aren't so sure that In Living Color would work in the 21st century. Larry Wilmore has said it would be hard to bring the show back now because, in his words, people are too sensitive. Jim Carrey agrees, saying there are too many lawyers in the world. It's true, comedy has changed since the 90s, but so has something else. Today, black shows are not a niche or a subgenre. They are part of the mainstream. And that's thanks to In Living Color and a host of black sitcoms in the 90s. Everything from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and The Sinbad Show to Martin and Living Single. The 90s were an era of revolution in black television. That's coming up next time on History of the 90s. Thanks for joining me for this look back at Keenan Ivory Wayans' groundbreaking show in Living Color. And thanks to David Peisner for putting it all in context. His book, Homie Don't Play That, was an immense help in putting this episode together. If you're a fan of In Living Color, it is a must-read. I'll put info about David's book in the show notes. And if you'd like to hear my entire interview with David Peisner, head on over to www.patreon slash historyofthe90s.com. Subscribers always get access to all uncut interviews as well as some other fun stuff. You can also find History of the 90s on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at That 90s Podcast. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 